Today's scripture reading comes from Psalm 27, or is Psalm 27. Um, In the Pew Bibles, it's page 460. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord, be strong. And let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Before Pastor Steve comes up, we're going to, um, Crystal's going to come up and share a song. So let's welcome her now. Purpose and this. 
All right, let's pray and go home. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. <laughs> uh, but seriously, let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into it here. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for Crystal and for the gift that you've given her. Thank you for her willingness to share that with us this morning. Thank you for the ways that you use things like music to speak to us. Uh, in a different way, to open us up to your truth in a different way. And God, we're also grateful for the truth that Crystal is saying, that the battle is not ours, it is yours, that we can trust you, and that you are good and, and have proven to be worthy of our trust because of Jesus and his death and resurrection. So God, this morning as we turn our attention now to your word, would you soften our hearts. Would you speak to us today, wherever we are at this morning, we bring in all kinds of stuff, all kinds of fears and anxieties and concerns and worries. And so use this, this text, this psalm this morning to speak to that. And again, to remind us that you are worthy of trust. We pray all this in the strong name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. amen. All right, um, I, I got to apologize. We have to uh, do a little bit of a public service announcement, and then we'll get back to Scripture, so kind of a, a, an awkward transition there. But two things that I wanted to talk about before we get into the psalm this morning. First is, to piggyback off what Hewan said, the, the Sojourn team that's coming, they'll actually be here next Sunday on the ground with us uh, next Sunday. And so, having been a part of these trips several times, I can tell you they are uh, extremely formative in the lives of students. And there are students coming on this trip who don't know Jesus. There are students coming on this trip with big questions who are wondering, what is God asking me to do with my life? And for many of them, they'll find some answers to those questions on a, on a trip like this. And so even though we're asking for relatively simple things, a sleeping bag and lunch food and, and some stuff like that, you are hoping to have 
an incredible eternal impact in the life of a student who you may never actually meet until you get to heaven, but still an, an amazing opportunity to have the impact uh, on the life of someone who may go on to change the world in some way uh, because of, of what they experience here with us uh, during that week. So uh, just a quick reminder, if you do have an extra sleeping bag or if you would like to bring some, uh, some lunch stuff, um, loaves of bread, um, stuff they can put on loaves of bread, chips, fruit, all that good stuff, bring that with you. Um, even, even up to next Sunday, there's some buckets out in the hallway there. You can just put it in there and that will go a long way towards helping them have a good experience here. And then the other thing that I wanted to talk about real quickly is um, it is uh, almost Easter. And we are entering into the, the traditional uh, church calendar season of Lent that begins um, actually on Wednesday. And uh, sort of coinciding with that, we've had a, a team of people emerging um, who are asking some really great questions about justice and mercy and the things that are happening in our world right now. And how do we as Jesus followers respond to that? And so this team is sort of a first step, first initiative, have put together a Lenten devotional for us as a community uh, to go through together. And I would strongly, strongly encourage each and every one of us uh, to do this, to be a part of this, and to see what, what comes out of it. There will be some opportunities for uh, discussion and some checkpoints along the way. But uh, during the season of Lent, to go through this devotional together um, and allow God to speak to us about what our response uh, to, again, different things that we see happening in our world might be um, individually, but especially as a church. So if you're interested in doing that, there's a couple ways to, to get involved. One is to take a physical copy uh, of that. They're out in the lobby today. You can just grab one on your way out. Very simple thing you can do. You can also sign up uh, to receive a digital copy. Um, and, and you'll get some updates about things that are happening, uh, again, during the course of Lent. But would love it if everybody in our church was able to do that together uh, in the next 40 days or so. So if you have any questions about that, um, you can talk to Allie Hu, who is here somewhere. She, oh, there she is, working in the cafe today as well. Um, and then some other people on the team will be around as well, um, and maybe even out in the lobby afterwards if you want to take a look at that stuff. All right, let's get to it. Psalm 27, if you have your Bible open, take a look at that. That's where we're going to be this morning. We've, uh, we've been in the Psalms from time to time over the last couple of months um, as we've taken some breaks uh, in the series in the Gospel of Mark that we've been in. Pastor Albert's been teaching through Mark. And in the times that we've been off, we've been looking at Psalms. Just a quick recap, we've seen that the Psalms are uh, this incredible collection of songs and poems that people have used for thousands of years to give uh, expression, to give word, voice to the experience of wrestling with God, communicating with God, talking with God. We've seen the Psalms are raw and honest and uh, uncomfortable at times, but they tell the truth. And they teach us that everything that we experience in life can be brought to God in this conversation that we call prayer. Everything. The good, the bad, the ugly, nothing is off the table or out of bounds. Now today's psalm wrestles with, gives expression to that question, great question that's been asked by everybody from Drake to Anna from Frozen. It's a great picture of Drake. I love that. <laughs> This great question, what are you so afraid of? What are you so afraid of? My son Cruz is two, 
And when he's presented with a new food that he's unsure of, that he doesn't want to try, he says, I don't want it. It scares my tummy. (laughs) Mushrooms, broccoli, whatever it might be, I don't want it. It scares my tummy. Like my son, we all have some fears that are kind of silly. I'm scared of crabs. Look at that thing. It's not so much the pinching. Like, I'm not really afraid about getting pinched by a crab. It's the way that they move. They move, like, forwards and backwards and sideways at the same speed. It just creeps me out. We have some silly fears, right? But we also have some legitimate fears. We have external things that we're afraid of. I am afraid that something bad will happen to my kids. We have internal fears, things that drive us, fear of of failure, fear of uh, wasting our time, wasting our life, whatever it might be. We have internal fears, we have external fears. Many of them are legitimate. And so whether we're, we're two or 72, fear and anxiety and how to handle that, what to do with that is a a huge part of the human experience. A big part of life is figuring out what do we do with our fear. And so this question, what are you so afraid of? Not just a a philosophical, interesting question. It is a spiritual question because fear is the largest obstacle to a life of faith. Now you may have heard doubt talked about as as the opposite or as the enemy of faith and certainly doubt can be uh, frustrating it can even be paralyzing at times but doubt can also be if handled well a really good gift doubt can spur us to ask good questions and to seek more truth it can actually help grow our faith the enemy of faith is not doubt it is fear When Jesus arrives on the scene, he doesn't say, doubt not. What does he say over and over again? Fear not. Fear not. It's the most often uh, repeated command in Scripture, and it gets right to the heart of the gospel. Because the gospel ultimately is an invitation to trust God. To trust God's justice, his sovereignty, and his grace. To trust that he is in control, that the battle is his, as Crystal just sang. So Psalm 27 speaks to all of this. Psalm 27, widely believed to be written by David while he was king of Israel. And it explores this tension between faith and fear. It begins with these two parallel rhetorical questions. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Okay, these questions begin, ground the psalm in in David's great faith, his trust in Yahweh. There's three images he uses here to, to convey his confidence in the Lord. The first is light. The Lord is his light. Light is a significant theme all throughout Scripture. It takes us back all the way to the beginning, in fact, to Genesis chapter 1. The first thing God creates is light. In the Old Testament worldview, darkness was seen as chaotic. It represented a lack of order. Light brought order from the chaotic darkness. One of the things David is saying here 
God is the one who brings him out of the chaos of his fear. Second image, the Lord is also his salvation. All throughout the psalm, salvation, a major theme. And it's usually talked about in the sense of preserving life. And so part of what David is saying here is the Lord extends my life, extends my days on the earth, gives me a new day. Finally, the Lord is seen as a stronghold. When you hear that word, think of a big old castle, a fortress, which is all about protecting you from attack. David says, I have nothing to fear. The Lord is my castle, my fortress, my protection, my stronghold. Now look at the next couple of verses. Why does David need this reassurance? Why does he begin with these images of of who God is? He goes on to say, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise, arise against me, yet I will be confident. Now a lot of us, many of us, all of us do what David does here, right? We construct likely but hypothetical future situations where something bad might happen. This is called catastrophizing. For some of us, this comes as natural as breathing, right? And it's amazing the things that we catastrophize about. Almost anything we can, we can begin to be con, uh, concerned about, whether it's relationships, a conversation that we might have, a trip to the doctor, natural disasters, even the zombie apocalypse, right? There's all these things <laughs> that we catastrophize about. It doesn't take much for us to give a lot of time and energy to something that may or may not happen in the future that produces in us this sense of fear. Now, David, not exempt from catastrophizing. This is sort of what he's doing here. And for a king, what he's thinking about, what he's dwelling on is actually, it's sort of wise for him to think about this, right? An attack from an enemy, a very real threat for a king. But let's look here at how David handles this. Okay, he names it, but it does not have control over him. What drives him is not his fear, but his trust in the Lord. Going back to verse 1, because God is his light and his salvation, his stronghold, even, the, even these horrible situations, these attacks from enemies that he can imagine and stress out over and worry about, not even that deters his trust in God. He can be, the word he uses there is confident. In the face of those things. Now look at verse 4. David says, One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. David begins this psalm with this great affirmation of trust. Does a little catastrophizing, but says not even that will deter my confidence in the Lord. And then he does this, this sort of strange turn to talking about church. What is this all about? Let's break this down a little bit. David says he has asked for one thing here. Now, this is not a statement of, of volume or saying I'm not going to ask for anything else. If, as we go through the psalm, we'll see that David does, in fact, ask for other things. But what he's talking about here is importance, primacy. The most important thing for David is what? Is to be in God's presence. 
Now, David sees God's presence tied to a physical space. This is very much in line with the Old Testament worldview. The Hebrews believed there were actual physical spaces that God inhabited. For many generations, that space was called the tabernacle, this sort of mobile tent that they carried with them. And then later, it became the temple. Now, the word tabernacle itself means dwelling place. These buildings were not just uh, structures for them to do religious activities inside of. They were seen as the physical place that God lived. His real presence was there with them in these spaces. God tabernacling, God dwelling with the people. Now let's pause here for a moment and think about this for a minute. Because for many, many people, myself included at times, we feel a great distance from God. We ask the question, where is God? Why is God so far away? This is a very human question. And of course, it shows up all over the Psalms. Psalm 10, why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus quotes this psalm when he's on the cross. Why are you so far from saving me? Psalm 42, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? We can feel a great distance between us and God. There's good reason for this. There is a distance between us and God. Distance that's the result of sin and the relational breakdown that is caused by sin. But the story of Scripture is the story of God coming closer and closer to us. It's the story of God erasing the distance between us. So the role of the tabernacle, the role of the temple was to remind people that even though there is this relational distance, God is actually not that far off. He's still here. He's still present. He is still with us. And again, for many people, we feel this distance and we feel like if God is anywhere, he's behind us or often some remote, distant place. But scripture says again and again, God is with you. And not only that, but God goes before you. Isaiah 41, fear not, there's that phrase again. For I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. God is with us. Deuteronomy 31, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Here it comes again. Do not fear or be dismayed. The truth of Scripture is that before you wake up, God is already at work. Before you get to work, God's already there doing something. Before you go to your home group or your gym or the grocery store or wherever it is that you go in the course of a day, God is already doing something in that place. His presence is with us, and it goes ahead of us. Now, in the New Testament, we read, The Word became flesh. The word here is referring to Jesus. And made his dwelling among us. Now, that word dwelling, 
And the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, it uses the same word in the Old and New Testament here for dwelling, and it is the word for tabernacle. So you can read John 1 this way, the word became flesh and tabernacled with us. And of course what Jesus teaches us, what the gospel tells us is that there's nothing that we could do to overcome the distance between us and God. And so God himself takes the initiative to come closer and closer and closer to us. From tabernacle to temple to Jesus and ultimately to our hearts. Now here's the crazy thing about Psalm 27. Okay, David predates the temple. It's actually built after him. And I think that in, in a way, he's foreshadowing what is to come many, many years after him. He's talking about, I think, Jesus when he talks about being in the Lord's presence, dwelling in the house of the Lord. He's definitely pointing us to Jesus, to the truth that in Jesus, God has come near to us. God has graciously overcome the distance between us. And so the one thing that David asks the most important thing he can ask for is the continual awareness of God's presence with him, going before him, protecting him. Verses 5 and 6, he'll hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He'll conceal me under the cover of his tent. He'll lift me high upon a rock. Now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, and I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. David makes the connection here between being in God's presence, the awareness of God's presence, and worship, and in particular, musical forms of worship. The structure of the psalm itself teaches us something important about worship. Six times in these two verses, verses 5 and 6, David, said, or David uses will or shall. First four wills are things that God will do. He will hide me. He will conceal me. So God acts first, and then because God does these things, David will offer sacrifices, David will sing. So God acts, David responds. This is how worship works. God acts, we respond. Worship is what James Smith calls a recalibration technology. It's a, your fancy phrase of the day. A recalibration technology. Worship sets our hearts back towards true north, back towards what is real and true. A lot of times we think about worship. What am I going to get out of it? How does it speak to me? How does it lift me up or make me feel better? But worship is not about what we get out of it. It is about responding to who God is and what he has done. This is exactly what David does in this psalm. That's why there's this turn in verse 4. Because God is his light and salvation and stronghold, because he is greater than David's fears, because he is with him and goes before him, David can trust him. And as a result of that, David worships. And it's the same for us. We worship because of who God is and what he has done. Now the first half of the psalm, this incredible reflection an affirmation of God's goodness and trustworthiness and David's faith in this God who is worthy of trust. But this is not just some uh, theoretical 
pontificating that David is doing here. This is born out of real struggle. David's got problems, and he talks about them in the second half. Skip down to verse 9. He says, hide not your face from me, turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help, cast me not off, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Why? My father and my mother have forsaken me. Teach me your way, O Lord, lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. False witnesses have risen against me and they breathe out violence. David was not just catastrophizing, okay? He's got some real problems here, right? Now, there's some theological circles that want to stay in the first half of Psalm 27, where it's all nice and positive and God is good and everything's going great, nothing to fear. There's theology that says don't bring your, your struggles into church. Don't talk about that stuff. That's too depressing, I call this the Christian radio theology. Just keep it positive and encouraging. <laughs> kind of surprised how many of you got that. That's, that's interesting. <laughs> the Psalms are not interested in being positive and encouraging. Certainly there is a lot there that is encouraging, but the Psalms are much more interested in talking about what is real. What is real for David is that his family has forsaken him. Adversaries are plotting against him. False witnesses are lying about him. And violence is being directed towards him. We may not have these same kinds of problems. But we do have our challenges, right? Our struggles, our addictions, our fears, our anxieties. And what David is doing here, and as we look at the psalm as a whole, is he's building the tension. He's saying, I know God is good and I trust him, but I also have these very real problems. And so what do I do with that? What do we do with that? How do we handle the tension between our fear and our faith? The end of the psalm gives us David's answer. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, let your heart take courage, wait for the Lord. How do we handle the tension between fear and faith? We wait. What a lame answer. (laughs) No one likes to wait. But I don't know if there is a more important spiritual discipline for 21st century Christians than waiting. We're so impatient, right? We want to know how the story ends. We want to get on with it. We want to release that tension between fear and faith. We just want to know what is going to happen. Maybe even deeper than that, we don't like to wait. We don't want to wait because we want to be in control. Waiting, by definition, is not being in control. And so waiting itself is a tremendous act of faith. One of the biggest tests of faith for me came in the process of starting our family. I'll make a long story short here and simply say that we lost our first pregnancy. 
And that was in and of itself a very difficult thing. But one of, the, one of the things that happens when you lose particularly the first pregnancy is that it makes the other pregnancies sort of fraught with peril. And so there was this period of time, I'd say 12 to 15 months, where we lived with this question. Is this one going to make it? Are we going to have a family? How is this going to work? Is, is this really going to be part of our story? Now, in retrospect, we're very blessed. We have two amazing kids, and we love being their parents. But again, there was a good year there where we did not know if we would get to this point. And that year was a lot of painful waiting. One of the biggest things I learned is that this kind of waiting that David talks about, it's not natural, right? We want to take matters into our own hands. We want to be in control or we run away or just avoid it. Either way, waiting, especially waiting on the Lord, very countercultural. It's a courageous act, this act of faith to get up every day and to say, I don't know how this is going to turn out. And it may turn out badly. <laughs> but I will trust. I will take heart. I will wait. I don't think I did a very good job of waiting during that year. But one thing that did challenge me and speak to me a lot from the book of Hebrews, this verse that says, All these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. There's a positive and encouraging verse for you. <laughs> Now, if you know this text at all, you know Hebrews chapter 11 is this long list of amazing heroes of the faith. All these Old Testament characters who did amazing things for God, who believed God, who believed in God's plan for redemption, but they never saw Jesus. They lived, uh, they did not live on our side of the cross and the empty tomb, and yet, this, this verse says they still believed. They were still commended for their faith, even though they didn't receive what was promised. Now, more broadly speaking, thinking about our own experiences, many of us, again, myself chiefly included, we fall into this sort of transactional relationship with God. God, if you do this for me, then I'll trust you. Then I'll believe you. All through that year of waiting for Amy and I, this verse was very challenging to me. Would I still trust God even if we didn't have kids? Even if our family did not start the way that we wanted it to? We all have hopes and dreams about how our life will go, how our uh, career will turn out, how our relationships will develop, what our marriage will be like, what our kids will be like, what we'll, where we'll be in 10, 20, 30 years. But here's the question. Is your trust contingent on those things turning out the way that you want them to? Are you willing to actively, courageously wait on the Lord even if the end result is not what you want? We're going to uh, close today with... Um, an extended time of musical worship. So I'll invite that band to begin making their way back up here. We wanted to, to do this, create some extra space for this recalibration technology to do its work, to, 
tune our hearts back to what is real and true. During this time of, of singing, we'll have communion available as always up here uh, and prayer uh, as well if you would like someone uh, to pray with you. Let me say a quick word about communion. Communion is this reminder of the truth that God has overcome the distance between us. That through Jesus, he's dwelt among us and continues to dwell among us, in us, with us because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Communion is a reminder that Jesus has overcome the world, overcome sin, even overcome death. And so we have nothing to fear. It's an invitation to live from that place of trust where we're not afraid. So as we get ready for this, as we uh, uh, prepare ourselves for communion and as we enter into a time of, of singing uh, together, I want to ask a couple of questions. Broadly speaking, what is the one thing that you need to do? What's the one step of trust you need to take this morning? Maybe it's placing your trust in Jesus for the first time. What would it look like for you to say this morning, the Lord is my salvation? Maybe you have concerns, worries, anxieties about work or family or money. What would it look like to be strong and to take courage with those things? Maybe your fear and your anxiety is tearing apart your relationships, undermining your relationships. What would it look like to say, my heart shall not fear. Of whom shall I be afraid? And then finally, maybe you are in this place of waiting. You're hoping for something. You haven't seen it yet. You haven't received it yet. And so what does it look like for you to wait on the Lord? Let's pray. Father, we all live in that tension of uh, fear and faith. There's so many things that we struggle with that, that are going wrong, that could go wrong, that we spend a lot of time and energy worrying about, catastrophizing over, concerned with. And yet the repeated promise of Scripture is to fear not, is to trust you, is that you are with us and for us and you go ahead of us, you go before us. Help us to know this morning as Crystal saying again, the battle is not ours. It is yours. And so God, we bring all these different things that we carry with us to you this morning and we give them over to you. As we enter into this time of worship, use this time, God, to recalibrate our hearts back to what is true, back to what is real. And again, wherever people are at this morning, whatever question is sort of sparking something in their hearts and minds, God, may we take that one next step of trust as we grow in this, as we become more like Jesus as you do uh, your work uh, in us and through us, God. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.